an overthrow of a government or an authority or a power. And we're going to go through most of the book of Mark over the course of this series. Last week we taught on the first verse of Mark, Mark chapter 1. Um, and given that there are 678 verses in the book of Mark, I thought I'm going to need to speed things up a bit because I calculated it. And if I do one verse a Sunday, it's going to take 13 years to go through Mark and we'll be done sometime in late 2028. And then our next series will be like, do androids dream of electric sheep or something? It'll be like, <laughs> right, Kevin, right, Blade, you got it. There you go, see? There's so many, it's layers, it's layers, Kevin. Um, so we're going to speed things up today. We're going we're gonna to look at seven verses. Ooh, seven. We're going to go from one to seven. We're going to look at um, Mark chapter one, verses two to eight. This is a, uh, a short little section of scripture but this is a place where Mark highlights John the Baptist. He gets highlighted as the special prophetic figure that comes before Jesus arrives on the scene. And like the first verse of Mark, we talked about that last week, about how the first verse is so packed, it's so charged, and it kind of builds on itself. And in the same way, this, this section on John the Baptist is very, very explosive for those who have ears to hear. John's Life and his message are incendiary. He's very controversial. We'll find out in a few verses later. He gets into a lot of tr trouble for his life and his message. And when you kind of see and understand what's going on with this guy, you, I think you can't help but get even more excited about where Mark is leading us. If, if the first verse wasn't enough, he kind of layers this next part. And, and that's kind of the pattern that you're going to see through Mark. Mark is kind of building this tension all the way through his gospel. He keeps ramping up the tension. Where is this going? What's going to happen? There's all these pressure points, and he culminates with Jesus entering Jerusalem. And we'll find out later what he highlights there. So I'm going to read Mark chapter 1, verses 2 to 8. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, the first thing I want to draw your attention to, and this is really, really important, is that John, or sorry, Mark introduces us to John by way of a prophecy. Verse 2 are, is a prophetic text. John says he's quoting from Isaiah the prophet, but he's actually, or Mark says he's quoting from Isaiah, but he's actually quoting from two, Malachi 3, which we'll get to, and Isaiah 40. And this is really important. These are two prophecies that were given hundreds of years before John or Jesus arrive on the scene. And they foretell this coming one who's going to do something powerful and important that's going to set Israel right. And Mark wants us to see here that the story that he's telling isn't just a once upon a time there was a Jewish rabbi and he had some teachings. That this Jesus and his life and his message, he, you can only really understand what he's about if you understand him in the context of a larger story. You can't just kind of pick it up with Jesus because he is 
coming out of a larger story. There's kind of a pre-story. It's like the, 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 the prologue to Lord of the Rings. If you don't kind of watch those first 10 minutes, a lot of what is happening with this ring and the Shire, I, it takes you a long time to piece it together, if you do it all. Mark says there's a backstory. What's the backstory? Well, this, this is it in a nutshell. I'm going to give you an overview of the Old Testament right now. Uh, God creates the world. world is good. Humanity screws it up. We rebel against God. Sin gets introduced, poisons everything, fractures all the relationships. God doesn't give up on us, though. He immediately goes into a plan to redeem and to restore, to take back what sin and the power of death and the enemy has, has poisoned and taken captive. And so instead of giving up on us, what God does is he says, I'm going to form a people. They're going to be a nation through whom I'm going to bring redemption and healing and my salvation to all the world. That nation was the nation, the nation of Israel. And through kind of a long and winding road, God eventually establishes them in the land. And he says, I want you to be a kingdom of priests to the world. I want you to be the bridge that connects the goodness and greatness of God and his healing power to the broken, dysfunctional, sinful, rebellious world. And um, they're a nation who at their best moments, that's what they want, that's what they long for. There are periods where they reflect that priority, but most of the time they, they really, really struggle. The nation grows, they continually struggle to remain faithful to God, especially the more powerful and the more wealthy and prosperous they become. They eventually build a temple under one of their kings called Solomon, and this temple stood as the central symbol for God's power and presence in the life of Israel. That temple was central to everything. It just symbolized this is the place where heaven and earth meet. This is where the Shekinah glory of God is. This is where forgiveness of sins happens. This is just a central symbol to all Jewish people. That temple gets destroyed by an invading Babylonian army in 586, 50 years later. Uh, sorry, at, at that point, Babylon uh, exiles a ton of the best and brightest, the most influential and, and most wealthy uh, Israelites way out of Israel to a place way to the east called Babylon. Fifty years later, another nation overthrows the Babylonians. They say, you know what, you can come back. Jewish people, you're allowed to come back. We'll even let you rebuild your temple. So they build a second temple. It's called uh, Herod's Temple. And um, second built, uh, temple, this was built, sorry, that was built under Ezra and Nehemiah. It later gets adapted and expanded under uh, one of the Herods. The second temple is not as good as the first one. There's this really heartbreaking scripture in the Old Testament where it says, when the elders who remembered the first temple looked at the second one once it was done, they just broke down and they wept because the glory was so far inferior. It was, it was a shadow of the glory. But it still stood as a, as a hopeful symbol that maybe Israel and God's people could be redeemed and maybe God could get things back on track and a second-class temple is better than no temple at all. But soon after the second temple is built, God goes dark. There's just no communication from God. There's a series of minor prophets. The last one is Malachi. And then for 400 years, God sends no prophets. There's nothing. And you can imagine, if you put yourself in Israel's position that begins to churn up a lot of anxiety in them as a people. Why is God silent? Not for like a generation, not for a hundred years, for, like for, for as long as we can remember, generation after generations, God hasn't spoken to us at all. We're still trying to seek God, but there's nothing. What have we done to cause God to distance himself? Is God gonna be silent forever? 
right? If you have those moments where you feel like, I feel like my prayers are hitting the ceiling. I, I don't feel like God's close to me at all. I, I don't, I don't, it feels like God's a million miles away. That's what Israel experienced for generations. And underneath all this, this anxiety was this growing panic that asked the question, has God actually given up on us? Like God had a plan. He wanted to restore things. He wanted to make things right. He wanted to use us. We were going to be a kingdom of priests to the nations. Is that still on his radar anymore? Or has God said, you know what? One sin too many, one rebellion too many. You're an obstinate people. I'm done. I wash my hands and I walk away. And so there's 400 years between the last book of the Old Testament and the coming of Jesus. And it's in during this period of silence, what's called the intertestamental period between the Old and the New Testament, this, this dark place, this quiet, God doesn't seem to be at work doing anything, that four groups emerge that didn't exist before, but they emerge as a reaction to this silence. And there are four kind of, um, kind of Jewish subgroups that we're trying to figure out what do we need to do to get God to speak? What do we need to do so that God will break his silence so that he actually establish himself as king so that he'd establish us as the nation under uh, the, the nation that follows him alone? How, what do we need to do to get out of being oppressed by foreign nations? We were first taken over by the Greeks. We had a brief period of independence under the Hasmonodians, and now we're back under the foot and thumb of Rome. These are pagan nations. God's supposed to be our king. Why would God allow his people to be subject to godless uh, pagan rulers? This is not right. So what do we need to do to kind of wake God up and say, God, will you actually come to help us? So there are four groups, three of which you read about in Scripture, one you don't. The first is the Pharisees. You read a lot about them in the New Testament. This is a group that emerged um, with a philosophy that said, we need to obey God's laws. If we get really serious about the Bible, if we get back to the Bible, memorizing it, living it, and not just the written uh, Torah, not just the written Old Testament, but the, what was called the oral tradition, the, the, the commentaries on those things, know it all, do it all, do it in precision, God will know that we're serious. And if we do that, that will cause God to act, and the kingdom of God, God's kingship and his power will come, and he will be established as king, and we will be his kingdom. The other group was the Sadducees. Uh, they were the group that said, oh, we don't want to rock this boat at all. We're loving life. The Sadducees are temple priests of this lesser temple. But by this point, so many of these priests were in league with Rome. They were very corrupt. They had adopted a very Hellenized, meaning Greek way of viewing the world, which saw man at the center, not God at the center. And Rome gave them lots of kickbacks economically to go about your religious mumbo-jumbo, but just kind of go through the motions. Uh, don't talk about God as king. Don't, you know, I'll make your life comfortable, and a lot of Sadducees live very comfortable lives. And so when, when these other groups were like, how do we usher in the kingdom of God? The Sadducees were like, let's just not do too much of that, okay? I like my lifestyle. I got a great job. It's amazing benefits. Why don't we just like go with the flow? And it's working for us. And it was working for them. It wasn't working for a lot of other Jewish people, but it was working for them. Third group is the zealots. Zealots were as close as we would 
think today maybe of kind of religious extremists uh, and militants, they had a battle cry that came out of the, the Hanukkah story in the Hasmodean revolt that said, no king but God. We will acknowledge and honor no king but God. And that means we will do everything in our power, including taking up the sword and killing people, Romans, who are in power, because God doesn't want pagans to be in charge of his people, and God doesn't want pagans running the world. God wants his people, that's us running the world. So they, they believe that violent insurrection was completely justified. They had, speci- they had a specialized group of assassins, and they were a dangerous, a violent, uh, a dangerous, violent group. The last group that emerges, not necessarily in terms of the timeline, but that I'm talking through, that you don't actually read about in the scripture, is a group called the Essenes. Um, if you, if that on any level um, jars a memory bank, it might be because. Remember a number of decades ago, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered? That, that they were discovered in a place um, in, in possession of these Essenes. The, the Essenes were the people that actually wrote and produced those documents. Most of those documents are copies of he- books of, of the Hebrew Bible or teachings on them that, these, that this group used. And this group said, you know what? When I look at Jerusalem, when I look at the temple, when I look at the corruption, there, God's not in any of this. It, this has gone so far beyond, this is almost irredeemable. So what we're going to do is we're going to go out into the wilderness, we're going to extract ourselves from the city, and we're going to train up a new generation of priests out in the, out in the desert, out in the wilderness. Because this was their conviction. If they showed God that there was a faithful group of priests that were willing to actually do what God said, to purify themselves, consecrate themselves, dedicate themselves to God, and train up a whole generation like that. You extract yourself from the city, God would come to his temple, obliterate uh, those who were falsely um, conducting you know, religious festivals in his name and stuff and the religious rituals. God would clear out his temple, God would cleanse it, and then God would allow this new generation of priests to come back in, then the temple would be restored, then the king would come, then the kingdom would be ushered in, and everything would be right in the world. Now, what's really interesting, if you want to put up the map mark, Israel is divided geographically north to south along four kind of major strips of land. Uh, the farthest uh, to, the, uh, to the west is the coastal plain, it's a pretty fertile place. Then there's the Shephelah that runs north to south. That's a little bit low-lying flatlands. Mountain region is obviously where a lot of the mountains are. And then on the other side of the mountain region is the wilderness. The Bible, will, depending on your translation, it'll say wilderness or desert. It's the same thing. It just means the place that's far east where <laughs> nothing grows. And it's a very scary place because it's a very... Um, a known place that the desert was seen as this mysterious, dark um, uh, place that, yes, God's people were often brought to in the Old Testament for training and testing, but by the first century, there was all this kind of urban legends about what kind of dangerous creatures and, and spirits haunted, haunted the wilderness. Um, so what these Essenes do, this group of priests, some men, some women, some children, they remove themselves from living in the city and they go out into the wilderness. And the reason why they go into the wilderness is super, super interesting. 
The reason why they went into the wilderness, because they could have gone north, they could have gone south, they could have just held a little protest outside the gates of of Jerusalem and just said, we're just not going to participate. We're going to hold up our placards and say, corrupt religious system. But they intentionally remove themselves and go into the wilderness. And the reason why they do is because of the prophecy of Isaiah 40, verses 1 to 5. In Isaiah 40, 1 to 5, it says this, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed and that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling, in the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, rough ground will become level and the rugged places a plain and the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together for the mouth of the, word has spoke, mouth of the Lord has spoken. So there is coming, wrote Isaiah, a day of great hope for Israel, of tremendous redemption. The kingdom's going to come and the glory of the Lord is going to be revealed and the place that it's going to be revealed first is in the desert. It's in the wilderness place. So the Essenes read this verse, they get it, they're like, okay, we're gonna prepare a place to meet our God out in the wilderness. So they literally pack up all their stuff and (laughs) give away a lot of it as you're gonna find out because the movement from Jerusalem, uh, the city-states, into the wilderness is not a small sacrifice. This is not, uh, this is not simply the logistical uh, shift of me and my family came from Ontario. How are we going to get all of our stuff out here? Whoa, this is crazy. But we'll get reestablished and we'll just transplant our life here. You are moving to a completely different way of life because this is what the desert looks like. This is the wilderness that awaits you. It is completely inhospitable, 120 to 130 degree Fahrenheit heat in the summer, very little rainfall, it is rocky, uh, very mountainous, difficult to traverse. You have to understand, some of these Essenes were former Sadducees. We know that from the historical records in the Dead Sea. A lot of these Essenes were people who were living a very comfortable middle-class life, upper middle-class. They were getting the kickbacks, but they said, this is not right. This is not the way, this is not what God wants. I don't want to be part of the system anymore. And I'm willing to give up an awful lot of power and privilege and comfort to go into the desert and prepare a way so that when God comes, God will be pleased with me and with my family. If you go to the next slide, this is an archaeological uh, dig that's been recently discovered, I think in the last 10 years or so. This is the uh, outcropping of a home uh, there's, if, if you could see a larger uh, kind of swath of pictures, there might be about 20 to 30 of these in the area. If you go to the next slide, it shows you uh, just how basic this is. This is, a, <laughs> this is a stone hut out in the middle of nowhere. And that's, that's like me and my four kids going out there to live. Like forever. Not like, oh, like for a weekend. This is it. We leave our old life behind. And we're, we're going to live here. And there's an artistic rendering. Um, you know, a lot of scholars think there had to have been some kind of shade covering. You would have got sunstroke and dehydration would have just said it. It would have been terrible. So, you know, that, welcome to your new life. 
These were people who were serious about their devotion to God. They, were, they seriously loved God. They were serious about having God as their king. And they said, we're going to move a group of people out into the wilderness, and we're going to train people. We're going to start with our children, but we're going to train everybody. And basically all they did all day is provide enough food and water for sustenance, and the rest of their time was spent learning the Torah, teaching it, memorizing it, immersing themselves in it because they saw themselves as forerunners to this coming king. They just absorbed themselves and they said, we're going to be the faithful priests. We're going to be a generation that's trained in the ways of God. Left behind their video games, left behind their iPads, left behind all the creature comforts. This, this, these people were seriously devoted to God. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's totally, totally amazing. And who were they preparing the way for? Well, it wasn't just a prophet. It wasn't just a good teacher because Mark quotes from Malachi 3.1. And Malachi 3.1, last prophet in the Old Testament, says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. But that's only the first part of the verse. The next part of the verse says this, Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come. So these Essenes said, we're going out into the desert, not just to provide a way for some new religious guru or the, the next big prophet. We're providing a way, we're preparing a way for God himself to come. Because Israel is so lost and the world is so lost, we don't need another prophet. We don't need another religious system. We need God to actually come and intervene. The only way we're going to get out of this hellhole is for God to step in and do something big. And that's what they're preparing for. And one of the things, just a side note, in Malachi 3, it says, um, the Lord will come, uh, he will come to his temple. Um, if you take a big picture view of Mark and watch what's going on, Mark starts his book in the wilderness and he moves it, well, I guess from your perspective, yeah, he moves it from the wilderness towards Jerusalem. So all of Mark is structured. The theme of Mark is the Lord comes to his temple. And, that, that's what's and, then, he sp- and then he spends a huge amount of time, about a third of the book, just in Jesus' final week when he comes to the temple. So Mark has all these clues. That he's like, this thing is building. This is going to be an amazing journey. This is action-packed. This is significant. Don't miss it. There's all these layering to what Mark is doing. So these Essenes believe that by living out in the desert, they're preparing a way not just for a new prophet, but for God himself, and that God's going to come to his temple, this corrupt, broken system, and he's going to set things right. He's going to make things the way they're supposed to be. So after quoting from these two prophets, Mark introduces us to John the Baptist. And he doesn't spend too much time on John the Baptist. But here are some of the things we learn from the other Gospels. In Luke... It says that John grew and became strong in spirit and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. We think, oh, at some point when he was an adult, he went out to the wilderness for a while. That is not the inference of the text. The inference of the text is from knee-high to a grasshopper, he went and lived in the wilderness. Why? Who's his dad? Zechariah. Zechariah was a high priest, but the Bible identifies him as a righteous priest. He was, a, he was a godly high priest, and he understood the corruption, and he said, I want something different from my son. I'm going to send my son, likely, not, there's no evidence, or, uh, sorry, there's no proof of this, there's lots of evidence that John would have been sent out to, to live with the Essenes. And we know that because a lot of what John does and how he talks and how he dresses and his lifestyle 
is very, very much patterned after this sparse lifestyle, Spartan lifestyle, that is completely about preparing the way for Jesus. In the Gospel of Matthew, John's message is, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. It says that he preached in the wilderness and he said, I want you to, you have to totally rethink how you're living your life because the kingdom of God, this king, has come near or is at hand. It's very, very close. And that was the ascenic expectation that one day God would come close, that the kingdom would come near. So when John starts saying this, everyone, everybody's ears perks up. Something as big is happening here. And so we can infer John was heavily influenced by these Essenes, by this community. And I think there's other reasons why you can say that John wasn't full-on an Essene. He didn't completely adopt their theology or their philosophy. But it's likely that he was raised by them or had very, very close connection to those who were part of that community. Because when you look at John's life, John is awesome. John is so just powerful and mighty and amazing and subversive. John bears all the marks of someone who's grown up in the wilderness and doesn't give a rip about anything other than honoring God. That is just John in, in, a, in a nutshell. We read that all kinds of people are attracted to this John character. Jewish people who are very God-fearing and religious, they want to come and hear what he has to say. Gentile people, people who are at least in a biblical sense of the word, irreligious, they worship idols, uh, follow after false gods, they come to be baptized by him. Roman soldiers, Luke records, like salt of the earth, like soldier guys types, who weren't Jewish, they were Roman, they, they, they're attracted to this guy. This guy is so, he's like a man's man, he's like, he's like the, um, who's that guy who does all the wilderness stuff out in the middle of nowhere? Bear Grylls, this guy's like, he's like survivalist, he eats like free-range locusts and shade-grown organic wild honey. He's like, oh, the, the hippies are going out to see him. Like, this, guy, this guy's attracting everybody. This guy is rugged and he's completely magnetic. People are just drawn to him. Sadducees and Pharisees come out to see him. These kind of members of the religious establishment, they travel east because they want to check him out because a lot of people are coming to be baptized by John. And they come to visit him in the wilderness because he's preaching two things. A baptism of repentance. Okay, not a huge deal actually. Jewish people did baptize people. The caveat was the only people who needed to get baptized were non-Jews who were becoming Jews. When you're a non-Jew and you uh, um, recite the Shema and you say, I'm going to give my, in a sense, devote my life to the true God of Israel, you are baptized to symbolically say, ah, now you have gone through the waters of Exodus. You've been carried through the Red Sea just like part of God's people. Now you are saved. You're part of God's family. But it says in, in the text that Jewish people were coming to John to be baptized. So his message was, oh, just because you think you're children of Abraham, you, like you're born of the right ethnicity, you kind of grew up in a God-fearing family, this repentance that I'm talking about, the person who's coming after me is so different in kind to anything else that you've ever heard, even you good religious God-fearing people, you need to repent. You're going to need to completely rethink how you're living your life. That raised the hackles of some of the religious people who were like, who are you to tell anybody, and certainly us, that we need to repent? The second thing that John t teaches is that he says, um, it's a uh, Mark records that John's was the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's a super big problem. 
because there's only one place in the first century that you go to to get your f- sins forgiven. What is it? It's the temple. So when the religious establishment who has control over the temple hears that there's someone out in the middle of nowhere preaching, not just that you have to repent, but that you can have your sins forgiven, but there's no interaction with the temple at all, Sadducees and Pharisees get very nervous and very upset very, very quickly because they have their corner on the market. And who would dare presume you could ever be forgiven of your sins outside of the sacrificial system that is only done in and through the temple? So John is out in the wilderness. This guy named John, he's going rogue. He's saying stuff that seems very dangerous, very subversive. But everybody is clamoring to see him. He's immensely, immensely popular. But don't miss this. The the overriding theme of John's life is coming out of this background of of, of an Essene and then now as as this bold new prophet, he sees his life through the lens of Isaiah 40. The whole reason I exist is to prepare a way for for Jesus. That, That is why I exist. I am here to point you towards someone who's greater than me. I'm just doing party tricks. I'm just baptizing with water. Someone is, coming, someone is coming after me. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and one of the gospels says, and with fire. There's gonna be a refinement. There's gonna be a judgment that, ha- that happens, but it's gonna cleanse, and it's gonna renew, and it's gonna bring healing, and it's gonna bring salvation. John says, the reason I exist is to point people towards Jesus. And on a very, very practical level, bringing kind of these few verses down to kind of you and I, here we are in Nelson, 2015. I really think we can learn a lot from the example of the Essenes and from John. And I really think their pattern in their heart and John's heart to say, the reason why I exist is just to make it as easy as possible for people to get to Jesus. And the reason why I exist is to just in ways big and small point people to the, great, uh, to the greatness of who Jesus is I think that should be something that's just part of our DNA as Christians. Are we doing that? Are we a people who are rearranging their lives? Not on the scale of the Essenes. Probably no one here is doing that. But are we rearranging our lives at all so that other people can come to know Jesus better? Are we thinking, are we conscious as we go about our day at school, at work, with our family, in our relationships? What can I do here to make a straight path for Jesus. To just use my words and my actions and my energy and my finances to connect other people to this great and glorious king. Are we a people that are kind of focused on living life as we see fit? We kind of find the rhythm, here we are, this is good, and yeah, I'm getting lots of kickbacks for the way I'm living. Or are we willing to revisit all of it because our king deserves it and because There's people who don't know our king. There's people who need to meet our king. This week, I met with a group of artists in our church, and it was super awesome. I didn't go to sleep till after midnight when I got home. My mind and heart was racing with a bunch of stuff. And I thought it was just going to be kind of like a, hey, artists, what do you think about stuff? I I don't know. It was kind of a warm-up meeting. And by the end, we had... There had been such energy and enthusiasm in the room, and it was amazing to kind of hold all these ideas together and to say, here's a group of people. They might not use this language, but they are excited 
to, to figure out how can I use my art to point people towards Jesus? How can we, how could I do that? How could I do that? How could we do that? What if we collaborated with this and this and this? And that was so exciting to me. That's what I think it means to be a Christian. In ways big and small, we're always asking the question, how can I point people towards Jesus in new and creative and beautiful ways? I think we've landed on some ideas. Uh, I'm hoping next Sunday to have something uh, pretty significant to share. But it was just really exhilarating to be part of a group of people who just in this moment were just caught up in this vision to, yeah, I want to just prepare the way so that people can see Jesus. I want to point people to him. And that's something that everybody in this church can do. We can all do this every day of our life in ways big and small. We can use our words. We can use our energy. We can use acts of generosity. Um, when we make commitments like teaching Sunday school or volunteering at um, a senior's home, when we write notes of encouragement to people, these are all ways that we are preparing the way for Jesus. We can all do that. Everybody in this room has something that you can use to point people towards Jesus. And you, and you need to use it. You need to use it. I want to close by giving you a very practical challenge. And I, I thought about it in the, in the light of Thanksgiving. Um, if you're a Christian here today, you're a Christian because someone in your life pointed you to Jesus. Or maybe there have been several important people who at very critical times pointed you towards Jesus. And those were turning points in your life. Very, very major. Either in becoming a Christian or God moving into an, an entirely kind of new depth of, of discipleship and followership to him. In light of thanksgiving, in light of recognizing that before Jesus can be fully revealed, God often sends a forerunner to point us towards Jesus, can I just encourage you to um, phone, like personally contact or write a letter to people in your life who have pointed you towards Jesus? Maybe it's just one person. I, I have a girl, Nicole. She led me to Christ when I was in grade nine. And I have her on, as a friend on Facebook. And we don't touch base very much, but I want to write her a letter this week and say, thank you that you, in ways that I'll never know, you altered your lifestyle. You hung out with a nerdy loser. You were willing to listen to me. You probably prayed. You sacrificed a lot of time praying for me answering all my questions about the book Revelation and prophecy and all kinds of weird stuff that I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know anything. But she was someone who pointed the way to Jesus for me. She made straight paths where it was crooked and hilly and weird and I didn't get it. I wasn't raised in a Christian home, so I had no frame of reference for anything. But she was patient with me. She brought me to Christ. I think we all need to do that this week. Phone call. If there's someone here in, in, in this congregation who in the recent past has made a difference, you, you invite them over to your house. You have them up for coffee and say, I want, I want you to know you have had a huge impact in getting, connecting me to Jesus. We're going to learn a little bit more about John next week. But until then, let's just sit with the example of the Essenes and with John. Let's be a church that learns from their passionate devotion and willing to just let everything else go so that God could use them to point people towards Jesus. And let's be a church that burns with a passion to prepare the way for the Lord in every single area of our life. Let's pray. God, as we move out into this new week, would you burden us for people who, 
in ways big and small, have, you have used to help us connect to you. You have used powerfully in our life. Help us to give thanks to them, God, but not just give thanks to you. Help us to connect with them and say thank you for your sacrifice. And may the fire of John the Baptist, may the passion of these Essenes who wanted to consecrate themselves and dedicate themselves so that they could prepare the way for you, may, may some of their spirit just catch on with ours. Some of that fire um, light us up, God, and give us a new imagination and a new vision for what it means uh, to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.